You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. All right. Hi, everyone. My name is Frank Om, and I'd like to uh, thank everyone for joining us today um, for our conversation on a topic I'm very excited about and I've been wanting to uh, dive deeper into for a while now, which is the four-party peace talks of the late 1990s. Um, I run the North Korea program here at, at U.S. Institute of Peace. So before I begin, I just want to introduce my organization for those of you who are not familiar. Uh, the U.S. Institute of Peace is a national, nonpartisan, and independent institute founded and funded by Congress that has the goal of preventing, mitigating, and resolving violent conflict. And you can find out more about our work at usip.org. Okay, so today's discussion will be a little bit different because we're not going to have each of the three speakers provide set remarks. Instead, we're gonna jump right into a moderator-led Q&A discussion uh, with brief for answers, uh, and also done in a very informal fashion where the other speakers uh, can jump in uh, if they want. I've tried to organize the questions thematically and chronologically so that it should be uh, relatively easy to follow. Um, and I want to start with providing a bit of a background to help paint the scene. So uh, many people who are interested in the Korean Peninsula, both as casual observers or as experienced experts, they often wonder why the United States and North Korea haven't already reached a peace agreement and normalized ties like the U.S has done with other past quote unquote adversaries like China or Vietnam. Well, one could point to North Korea's nuclear weapons program and say that remains the primary obstacle for the US. But North Korea hasn't always had a nuclear program. And in fact, in the 1990s, its nuclear and ballistic missile program was very rudimentary and, and largely mothballed after the bilateral agreed framework uh, deal shut down its Yongbyon facility uh, in 1994. So this should have been a perfect moment to, dust, uh, to discuss a more comprehensive peace agreement, especially if both sides were really interested in peace. And in fact, in April 1996, President Clinton and South Korean President Kim Young-sam met on Jeju Island and proposed four-party peace talks with North Korea and China. This proposal sounds radical now, especially when compared to the previous 40 years when the US largely uh, ignored and disengaged from North Korea, uh, but also compared to the last two decades uh, where the US approach has been laser focused on North Korea's denuclearization, uh, especially as a prerequisite for any peace talks. In fact, I would argue that the four-party peace talks proposal was the only time in the last 67 years uh, basically since the 1954 Geneva Conference, in which the U.S. publicly and proactively proposed and engaged on the specific issue of peace and normalization. Uh, of course, there are some other discussions over the years. The two Koreas certainly uh, discussed improved relations many times, uh, but this did not include the U.S. Um, I think Kissinger may have had some uh, discussions with China and North Korea in the late 70s, and of course, the six-party talks in the mid-2000s contemplated some working groups on normalization, but none of these ideas advanced past the planning stages. 
So what happened after Clinton and Kim proposed the four-party peace talks? Well, North Korea, despite having sought uh, direct talks with the US for decades, took over a year to respond. And then when it finally engaged, the talks seemed to sputter and not make much progress. So that's the, the basic framing. I'm sure we'll get into more details, but um, you know, there obviously isn't much written about this period. Uh, probably for good reason, because uh, there wasn't a whole lot tangible achieved, but still I think it seems to probably warrant more study and attention, especially because these four party peace talks represent or should represent the process and discussions that we should ideally be striving for, whether it's right now or in the medium term after some sort of interim agreement. Fortunately, we have three participants from the US delegation to those talks with us today and they'll be providing some insights from that period and potential lessons for future peace talks. Uh, also, today's discussion uh, is very timely since Secretaries Blinken and Austin are in Seoul right now, uh, talking with their South Korean counterparts about the future direction of our North Korea policy. So let me jump in and, and introduce our panelists. Our first one is Bob Carlin, who is a non-resident fellow at the Stimson Center and the former chief of the Northeast Asia Division in the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research. Next is Philip Yun, who is the president and chief executive officer of the World Affairs Council of Northern California. And back in the 90s, he was a senior policy advisor for the assistant secretary uh, of state for East Asia at the State Department. And then last is Chip Gregson, who is senior director for China and the Pacific at the Center for the National Interest He's also a former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Asian and Pacific Affairs. Uh, he was also DOD's representative to the four-party talks. Uh, and then before I start the Q&A, let me just note for our audience that you can start getting in uh, your questions in the queue by using the chat box function that is just below the video player on the USIP event page. Okay, so let me dive right in. Uh, and this first question is uh, for Bob. Uh, I mentioned earlier that there was this four decade period from the end of the Korean War basically to the 1990s in which the two sides had no serious diplomatic interactions or discussions on peace and security. Uh, what was the reason for this, uh, this gap in, uh, in, in, this, in interactions during this period? Frank. Uh, thanks you for that really good lead in um, your first comments on this overall issue. <clears throat> I'd say um, it frames the problem in a way that really wasn't in anybody's mind at the time. Uh, and that's important to understand. Uh, one reason that there was no real engagement for so many years after Geneva was neither side was interested. I mean, it's really very simple. When I came to the CIA in 1971, the Korean War was only 18 years distant. 18 years is not a long time in the memory of Washington, DC. A lot of people had participated in the war. And so the image that people had of North Korea was still of the country that had invaded in 1950. Moreover, the Pueblo incident was only two years distance, shoot down of the EC-121, the attack on the Blue House. So the image of North Korea at that time was of a 
and rightly so, was a very belligerent, aggressive um, pro problem. Yeah, and, and South Korea was relatively weak at that time, don't forget. Uh, it was a basket case economically still. So we weren't interested in engaging with North Korea. It was a military problem. It was an INW problem. Big question was, are they going to attack? For their part, the North Koreans were not interested in dealing with us. They wanted us off the peninsula, period. Uh, from the late 50s through um, the early 70s to the mid 70s, they only wanted to deal with the South Koreans. And I don't think seriously, but the proposals for peace talks were all aimed at Seoul. Uh, they thought the United States had nothing to do with that, that we should leave. In 74, they shifted because they were angry at the South Koreans. They wanted to belittle Park Chung-hee. And so they made a proposal to the Americans for peace talks. I don't think it was serious, but it was the first time that they had aimed something like that at us. But from then until 1990, why wasn't there any real serious uh, engagement? Well, beginning in 88, after the Olympics, we started slowly to reach out to the North Koreans, fairly low level. In 1990 or so, when the Soviet Union collapsed, that's when Kim Il-sung made a strategic decision. He needed normalization with the Americans. And from that point on, you began to see uh, little by little uh, increasing signals from the North Koreans that they wanted serious contact with the Americans. That got us to um, the agreed framework and then came, and I guess we'll get into this later, the four party talks was a bolt from the blue. It was not a carefully considered proposal and uh, I'll, I'll talk more about it later. I think it put the North Koreans significantly off balance. Well, Bob, that actually gets into uh, my next question. And also, I, I, let me add that uh, if uh, Phil, Chip, any of you want to jump in, just let me know. Uh, you can uh, raise your hand uh, just to signal that. But uh, that's a great segue, Bob, because um, we talk about the, the 1990s, um, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, Notewu was, was implementing his host poly, uh, politique policy. Uh, trying to reach out. And so there was certainly a shift, right? And not only that, that's when we get the signals about North Korea threatening to advance their nuclear weapons. Uh, so I think, you know, this is where we see more engagement. Um, I think the, the first senior level engagement at the high level uh, was uh, Arnold Cantor and Kim Young-sum in New York in, in, I think, 1992. And then, January, and then you had Jimmy Carter and Kim Il-sung meet in 94. And then, of course, the Gallucci-led meetings led to the agreed framework. But then 18 months after that was the proposal for the four-party peace talks. So you already addressed it a little bit, um, but how did the idea for the four-party peace talks come about? Bill, go ahead, take it. Well, um, I, I, you know, if you talk with, um, I, I think Bob said it right, it was sort of a bolt out of the blue for the North Koreans. I think it caught um, the State Department, JCS, and DOD. Chip, I would like you to, uh, uh, chime in here sort of flat-footed as well. Um, I try to dig a little bit behind as to how that all happened. Um, and the best that I can, can determine 
was that there was this desire, it was staff led to some degree. We knew that the South Koreans were very unhappy about feeling left out on the sidelines because of the US and the DPRK had engaged so much with the agreed, agreed framework. And then we had a submarine incident at, at that point too. So they were trying to get back into what they seemed in a meaningful position and not being on the sidelines. I think the United States was worried about the ROK because they wanted everyone to be in line and there was help that was gonna be needed to implement the agreed framework, mainly money. And we we're also afraid that the agreed framework um, you know, structure might fall apart. So there's an incentive to try to do something. And you know, the best that, you know, I've done a little bit digging here and there, I think it was staff, staff driven. I think it was mostly through um, the NAS Security Council and the ROK. And you know, there are all these kind of rumors. I think Bob Sutinger at that point, and you know, maybe Bob would be able to tell us um, uh, that there were some conversations about this kind of thing uh, coming about. And I think then it just sort of percolated up. And um, you know, that, that's sort of what I've been able to tell. But you know, in terms of getting a hard um, description through the State Department, I think the description there was it was it was a surprise. Uh, it's interesting because uh, there's moments in, in history where it seems like these grand ideas come together pretty quickly with uh, not years and years of preparation. I think uh, one example is the presidential nuclear initiatives in the early 90s from President Bush, but also the, the four-party peace talks ideas. Um, Bob and Chip, anything else to chip in on that question? I can add a personal perspective. Uh, Phil's absolutely right that the announcement about the four-party talks caught uh, DOD flat-footed. Uh, I was still working for the Marine Corps when the announcement was made, and I was, in fact, at a conference in New Orleans uh, doing Marine Corps business when suddenly found out that my itinerary changed and also my work had changed, that I was supposed to go to the Pentagon and work for some guy named, named Campbell, and by the way, don't fly back to Washington. Your tickets have been changed. You're going to Geneva. So I show up at Geneva and get up the next morning, uh, you know, jet lagged and everything else. Uh, walk into the four party talks and uh, there's an officer from the command in Korea walking next to me and he's got a paperback book. And I said, why do you have that? He said, you'll see. We got about five minutes into the talk and the South Korean interpreter and the North Korean interpreter get into a really heated argument with each other. So I turned to the guy next to me and said, what's this all about? And he said, they're arguing about what was said. I made the obvious comment that, that they both taught, they, they both speak Korean, what, what's, what's the problem? He says, ah, that's lesson one. There are different dialects between South and North Korea. I said, what's, le what's lesson two? He said, bring a paperback book next time. And then he opens a book and starts reading it. That was a guy named Mike Hayden. You might recall he went on to other things. Uh, but uh, yeah, the talks were uh, uh, a, a big surprise to, to, to DOD. We'd gone from uh, uh, a position in the, when the North Korean nuclear program surfaced, 1993-ish, uh, four, uh, to a big muscular response, and we were we were moving forces around and talking about deployments and everything. That very quickly got shut down in favor of negotiations, but nobody knew what the negotiations were going to look like. So when it was announced, there was this this four party thing. Um, 
uh, it saved an awful lot of staff work because there wasn't a lot of time to do staff work. Uh, so we so we just went to it and it started from that. Um, the, uh, the 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 sessions were rather bereft of results, but at least it served the purpose of actually having uh, dialogue with the North Koreans. So that that was a gain from this in the early days, in my uh, estimation. As a as a former staffer at OSD, sometimes I appreciate it when we don't have too much time to plan, and you can just quickly quickly move into the meetings. So let me move on. Um, we we had the proposal uh, from Clinton and Kim Young Sam. North Korea hears that they've been clamoring for talks with the U.S., but they took over a year to respond. The proposal was made April 1996. I think they finally responded uh, April 1997. Why the hesitation from North Korea? Again, I'll direct it to Bob first, but anyone can join in after. Well, the question would, I, I would ask the question differently, which is why wouldn't they hesitate? They had the agreed framework, which was an extremely important agreement with the US. We were just getting into it. Both sides were moving ahead with it. And suddenly out of nowhere comes this idea that the South Koreans and the Chinese should join in talks. The question in Pyongyang was why? What is this about? Is Washington interested in the agreed framework or isn't it? Moreover, Pyongyang had no desire to deal with South Korea or Kim Jong-sam. Kim Jong-sam had done what he could to undermine uh, Kim Jong-il when he came in. Uh, the South Koreans, as far as the North was concerned, the South Koreans were being bloody-minded. They were only going to get in the way. And uh, as for the Chinese, the, the North Korean position was, why, why the Chinese? Why should they take part in this? They withdrew their forces in 1950, whenever it was, 57, 58, they don't have anything to do with this issue anymore. So they shouldn't be part of this process. So naturally it would take the North Koreans a long time to be convinced that this is what they needed to do. Is yeah, so uh, I think right before uh, the proposal in April 96, the North Koreans had also been proposing bilateral talks. Um, so it seems they were set back a little bit by the four-party proposal, again, as you mentioned, Bob, because they weren't sure about why China and South Korea had to be involved, right? Phil, you were going to say. Yeah, so I, I think the South Korea, I mean, the North Korean reaction could be really categorized, I've heard in many ways, confused, right? Um, I think Bob is absolutely right. The agreed framework um, represented, I think, two different approaches. Uh, and this is where fundamentally the United States and, and North Korea kind of missed each other. They were going at two different planes, right? North Korea looked at the agreed framework really as a relationship, right? The possibility of normalization. That's how they looked at the agreed framework while the, while, while the United States looked at strictly as a non-proliferation agreement. So right there, you've got a huge disconnect. Um, and then what happens is that you get what was called really the, the, the language of, of, the, of the announcement itself that came out. The language itself was intentionally made ambiguous. And so therefore the North Koreans are saying, well, what does this actually mean? So if you wanna go into the nitty gritty, we made it ambiguous so we could, uh, you know, the, the South Koreans and the United States made it ambiguous so they could, 
you know, there could be some negotiations involved. The South, the North Koreans are saying, well, what does this mean? I mean, it was like, what's the agenda going to be? Um, the statement said something about they prohibited um, uh, U.S. and North Korea talking about peace-related issues. Well, what does that mean, right? And then, um, you know, what does a peace arrangement or uh, regime, what does that mean? So they had all these questions that uh, rightly so. And again, you have to realize the context. North Korea desperately needed food. Um, the regime was under incredible amount of stress. And therefore for North Korea, you know, for, the, for North Korea, every move politi politically is an existential decision for them. That's how they looked at it. For us, it's like one of 30 things on our plate. And therefore, that's why you have to expect them to be very cautious about how they go about any kind of major decisions, particularly something like this. It's interesting that we thought that we were making it easier for North Korea by making it a little more ambiguous and not too specific. But their perception is, wait, what does this mean, right? Uh, but I'm glad you brought uh, some of these vague terms like peace regime and peace arrangements, because we're going to get to that next. So. Um, one of our main aspirations for the Korean Peninsula is a peace regime to replace the armistice regime. It's one of the four goals um, stated in the 2018 Singapore statement. Uh, I always thought the first mention of a peace regime was in, actually in the six party talks 2005 joint statement. But as you point out, it, it was preceded that and it was, it was brought up at least as early as the four party talks proposal. Um, in fact, uh, there were two committees that uh, were one of the few things that was actually agreed upon in four part talks was the idea of the two committees, right? One for a peace regime and another committee uh, related to tension reduction. So uh, can you talk a little bit, I'm, talk, I'm addressing this to Phil, but can you talk a little bit about these terms, um, the ambiguity, how they may have been perceived uh, by the four parties, uh, peace regime, peace arrangements, what, what were the nuances here? So it's kind of funny, the story for me was that, you know, I. Uh, Clinton had just been reelected. I, you know, I had been at the department for about three, four, three years um, at that point. I wanted to do, I'd stayed away from North Korea and Korea intentionally, but with the second term, I wanted to get more involved. So I remember talking to my boss, Stanley Roth, and I said, you know, I want to get involved in this North Korea stuff. Um, can I, can I, uh, you know, I, you know, let me know. So he comes back to me and says, you're a lawyer, right? And I go, yes, I am. And he goes, okay, well, they just decided that they're going to have a, a subcommittee on the peace regime. I want you to be the head, you know, head, you know, the the head of that uh, the delegation for that subcommittee. So I remember, I, I remember this distinctly because Bob was one of the first people I went to to say, so what is a peace regime, right? And Bob looks at me, and goes, I don't know, it's whatever we decide it's going to be, you know. Um, and then he gave me all the paperwork that was about, you know, what the various positions had been, and so. Um, it was intentionally ambi amb uh, ambiguous because there had been so much fight about who was going to sign what and how. And it had been such a zero-sum game where it was intractable. I mean, North Korea said, we're only going to sign it with the United States. And South Korea said, we're only going to sign it with, with North Korea. And the United States shouldn't be involved in this, right? So, you know, that's a zero-sum situation. And so, you know, being a lawyer, if, uh, you know, Good lawyers, and I wasn't part of the uh, um, the, the the legal advi legal advice uh, um, legal uh, team at the at the department, but good lawyers can make 
can be very creative in kind of the arrangements. So if you have peace treaty, that's one document. Peace regime means there can be so many structures. And the way I looked at it, me being a business lawyer at that point is you can structure a deal in any way you want to get the, des uh, the desired outcomes that you, you want to have. And there were so many issues related to that was the USROK Alliance, the withdrawal of US troops, um, you know, who signs all of these things. And so peace regime was a very ambiguous statement to be able to deal with all of those and to make some adjustments according to what was necessary on the ground. Um, and I think the South Koreans felt that way as well. Um, you know, and the Chinese were interestingly, and Bob talks about this first, the North Koreans were, I think, a little worried that it was going to be a one on three because the Chinese initial position had been, well, we think, you know, inter-Korean issues should be, you know, dealt with between North and South Korea. So in fact, they were supporting the, uh, the South Korean position. And was there uh, progress made in the peace regime subcommittee? Uh, no, not really. Um, we saw, you know, it, it was a lot of, a lot of talk, a lot of rhetoric, a lot of positioning. And I think, um, um, and, you know, just hearing sort of uh, what you had heard for, for many, many years before that, they were on a very short lease. And I think that uh, Chip said it just right, where there wasn't a lot of substantive um, uh, uh, progress because what happened was they wanted a peace treaty signed first and then they thought you know it was sort of typical let's go top down so peace treaty first end it and then we can talk about the other issues the united states was the other way around let's do confidence building uh, a a piece of paper is not going to mean anything if nothing changes on the ground so let's work on confidence building the united states was very serious about that but we got nowhere on any of that so again two fundamentally different approaches um, to this particular problem. Phil, I'm glad you brought up some of the other ideas that we'll get into, like the U.S. Rock Alliance and the U.S. troop presence, particularly because if we're talking about treaty, that has a specific legal definition, and it can be binding um, and have implications for things like uh, troop presence in the Korean Peninsula, whereas a regime or peace arrangements is, is a lot more vague, not legally binding, um, and, and maybe not as threatening to some of our equities and interests. Um, so with that said, recognizing that there was the peace regime subcommittee, there was also the tensions, tensions reduction confidence building subcommittee, right? Um, and then maybe I'll direct this next question to Chip. So we have uh, this other subcommittee um, on tension reduction, but I think, so throughout the, the four party talks, this issue about US troop uh, withdrawal was being raised, right? So North Korea wanted that to be on the agenda, U.S. troop withdrawal. Um, and I think particularly during the second round in March 1998 of the talks, North Korea requested that specifically that U.S. troop withdrawal be put on the agenda. Of course, uh, let me ask. Let me ask a question: Is that a quote, or was the did they want quote the disposition of U.S. troops? Did actually, they use the yeah. word withdrawal? I don't. I don't think so, but I'm not positive. Actually, you guys were there, so please uh, clarify. Um, I'm going by uh, secondhand sources, news articles. Uh, but again, I think uh, the idea of a discussion about US troops being on the agenda was something that North Korea raised, at a minimum, right? Right, right. Um, and, and I think at some point, that seemed to have 
uh, depress the momentum for talks uh, with that. And there probably were other ideas, things that North Korea raised like humanitarian assistance or focusing just on a US DPRK treaty. But uh, let's focus right now on the, on the idea of US troop withdrawal and that being on the agenda. What was the US government's thinking when they heard this uh, sort of counter proposal from the North Korean side? Again, this is the chip. Um, uh, I can characterize, I think, uh, what, the, what the feeling was inside DOD, uh, as I, and, and as I recall, uh, in the uh, interminable meetings that uh, Phil and I and others sat through, I'm not sure there was any violent objection to DOD's position from, from the other agencies, but uh, uh, troop withdrawal uh, very, very much at the end of the process. And uh, as I think you said earlier, Frank, just signing a piece of paper doesn't make the facts on the ground change. And that's, that's exactly where the feeling was. A couple of things in the background on this. Uh, uh, during most of the time between 1950 and 1990, the uh, Republic of Korea was not a democracy. It was a dictatorship and its forces reflected the uh, the way dictatorships work, uh, a lot of a lot of soldiers, a lot of cannon fodder, uh, not uh, maybe less of less sophistication in their plans than uh, comes from democratic governments and militaries from democratic governments. Uh, the nuclear thing came out of the blue in the early '90s, uh, and that started to eclipse all the other issues that were at play on the peninsula. Number one, Korea democratized. And from my personal observation, with a lot of exercises in Korea before they became a democracy and after they became a democracy, the proficiency of their armed forces went up very rapidly. Uh, they had to uh, they had to learn to uh, uh, be able to delegate. They had to learn to use uh, use their their junior leaders. They did all that. Uh, the things that we tried to teach them over the years uh, turns out they learned it and learned it better than we thought. Uh, but then the nuclear issue eclipsed everything else. Uh, we and, and one of the issues that rarely, if ever, comes up on this is that North Korea has, and check me if my source is wrong, off from the intel community, but North Korea has over 10,000 pieces of long range artillery in the Kaesong Heights overlooking Seoul. And Rand in those days did a series of war games on uh, how long it would take to to reduce this threat to one of the one of the if not the biggest mega center in, on the planet, and the and the findings aren't good. So North Korea's capital is exceedingly vulnerable to just conventional fires, uh, let alone anything that, uh, that that comes up in the nuclear arena. Uh, South uh, North Korea was very smart when they lost the money from the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, they changed things and they really went uh, uh, into creating advantages that could be imposed from long range. And 80% of their forces are deployed within range of the demilitarized zone. And South Korea's forces are not there. Um, so we in the Department of Defense were not uh, in favor of withdrawing what look to us like uh, one of the linchpins of deterrence against North Korea. More, a little more complex is 
is uh, an agreement to withdraw U.S. forces that was not agreed to by the South Koreans uh, has a would have the effect of splitting the alliance. So this this was a very clever move uh, for North Korea to put on the chessboard and one very very hard for us to uh, uh, us to respond to uh, in any way other than just saying no. Thanks for that uh, background, Chip. Uh, and uh, just another data point is uh, the transfer of peacetime control over ROC forces uh, happened just a few year, uh, years earlier in 1994. So that threat environment uh, that you painted was absolutely true. Uh, Bob, yeah, you and, and, and that uh, the transfer of peacetime opcon was uh, um, very significant. Uh, the, the, our Korean allies kept telling us, we need this, we need peacetime opcon. Uh, we had the same conservatism out of the Pentagon that y'all have come to expect and love, I'm sure, that where we were saying not so fast, let's study this, we studied this, we did it. And uh, yeah, it was the right thing to do. Now we're still into transfer of wartime opcon. Uh, and the agreement between the Republic of Korea and the United States is that when conditions are met, we will do this. And the biggest stumbling block to doing this is the, uh, is the command and control uh, uh, structure, not the arrangements. The arrangements are agreed to once we get the structure in place. But, uh, um, it, remain, but it remains to be seen if and when South Korea is going to devote the resources to build out the command and control structure, the, the, the radios, the wires, all that other stuff uh, that are needed to control a very, very sophisticated command and control arrangement that is not equal anywhere else in the world. The combined forces command is a unique beast. And uh, what we don't want to do is damage deterrence in the interest of progress to enhance deterrence. And uh, done right, South Koreans having wartime opcon, I think, can be done to enhance deterrence, but we can't do it in such a sense that it leaves us um, uh, in a less competent position than we are now. That's a very salient point. Thank you, Chip. And certainly it's one of uh, that wartime opcon transfer is one of President Moon's top priorities. We're seeing it become more and more of an issue as uh, it factors into the military exercise and, and testing South Korea's capability to uh, assume the lead of the combined defense, but also in terms of South Korea's own ramp up of their military capabilities, because that's one of the conditions for the transfer of wartime OPCON, uh, acquiring these capabilities, right? Before I go to Bob, I saw you have your hand up. Um, just a reminder to the audience that um, if you wanna ask a question, uh, there's a chat box right be beneath the video player on the main page. Bob. Let me back up. This question of U.S. forces is extremely important and not well understood. You mentioned that in January 92, we had our first high-level meeting with the North Koreans, um, which I was sitting in. And the North Koreans there told us, uh, in so many words, that we could keep our troops yep. in Korea until, and it was way off in the distance future. In the agreed framework talks, question of US forces never came up, never came up. So in 90, and in fact, they were telling us behind the scenes, yeah, you can keep your troops. As long as they're not pointed at us, you can keep your troops in Korea. So in 96, when they asked to put it on the agenda, 
And I recall, Chip, uh, DOD reacted strenuously against that. No, under no, in no uncertain terms, it can't go on the agenda. And our argument from state was they just need it there um, so they can demonstrate to Pyongyang that at least something that North Korea wants is wants to talk about is on the agenda. Subsequently, the head of the North Korean delegation took us aside and said, I need something on the agenda. Why won't you let it? We're not going to call for US withdrawal, but we need something on the agenda to make it look like these meetings actually represent a North Korean interest as well. So I think it was, it was a misfire on our part. Um, and it was, a, it was a problem within the US government. It wasn't really between North Korea and the US. Uh, before I turn to you, just I want to follow up. I, I'm glad you brought that point because there is this equivocation from North Korea. You mentioned how they didn't bring it up in that first meeting. They, I've, I've also read that they didn't bring it up to Kim Dae-jung when he had talks with uh, uh, Kim Jong-il. And of course, in the recent uh, Trump-Kim talks over the last a uh, couple years, uh, they didn't bring up uh, U.S. troops during that period either, right? So they bring it up in certain instances. They seem to downplay it in other instances. It's really hard to understand what North Korea's motivation is. Of course, on one hand, it could be the fact that they just want some reciprocity. They just want something to be on the agenda that they can take back. On the other hand, is, is it maybe a ploy that once we get it on the agenda, then all of a sudden we can't backtrack and now they need to have a deliverable or outcome from that specific agenda item. You can see it both ways, right? That's why the, the wording is important. If the wording was the disposition of US forces in Korea, that's very vague and allows them to talk both three, all three sides of the issue. Uh, if it's very specifically withdrawal, um, then that's something else, um, too, too specific, I would say. So uh, that's why I'm interested. I don't recall exactly what the wording was. Okay. Chip. I appreciate Bob's point. It uh, could very well have been um, a lack of sophistication on our part on how to, uh, how to play this issue. If North Korea wanted something on the agenda, uh, you and Phil and the other folks that uh, play in this diplomatic arena much more than uh, than anybody in the Pentagon does, uh, there could have been a backdoor agreement that uh, we're not going to put this on unless it says this and you give us this other thing. Uh, but uh, uh, we didn't do that, and uh, I think it's probably uh, this was this was all still pretty new to all of us at the time on negotiating with North Korea, and I think that uh, we didn't uh, we weren't as smart as we thought we were. Yeah, so let me jump in here too, just for, sort of for additional context. I think that's right. I mean, you know, you, you, it seems like now the way we talk about this is that um, you, people have to remember that it was on, not until like 1992 um, and really 94, we had really significant interactions with the North Koreans. We didn't have a lot at that point. 
So, you know, everyone can be forgiven for the lack of sophistication to some degree, especially throughout the whole bureaucracy. It takes a while for that to filter through. You can't say that now in the sense where you have a fair amount of interaction, although it's, you know, I think, you know, most recently it's been more one-sided where we, it's been since the uh, sixth party, it's more about North Korea saying no all the time and instead of getting to yes, okay? So that's another set of experiences that I think are important. Um, but I also have to say that with North Korea, you know, it, it's true, the whole, the idea was, this was about, in my mind, hypothesis testing, right? And if, as Bob says, if you structure it in the right way, you can actually, to answer your question, Frank, is this a ruse or isn't it? Are they serious or are they not? If you don't ask the question, and if you're not given the freedom to start testing and probing, you're not gonna get anywhere. And so I think that was sort of the argument that we were making on state. And you know, quite frankly, when we are putting together the Perry process, trying to talk about whether we address a peace treaty or not and how we go about it, there were internal discussions about that as well, what would be cleared and what wouldn't be. And so to me, the bigger picture and I think one lesson learned, you know, well, you'll get to this later, is don't be afraid to test hypotheses. That's what this is all about. And if you don't have that opportunity and you don't learn anything, you're not gonna get anywhere. And I think that the whole relationship with North Korea is a perfect example where we don't, we're not learning the lessons that we need to learn from all of this. It's interesting because this uh, sort of interaction came up again in 2018 with the discussion about the end of war declaration and what that means. There were certainly people conflating an end of war declaration with a peace treaty or a peace regime. I think there were reports that the State Department was willing to contemplate that idea. DOD was more uh, skeptical, again, because of the implications for US forces and all that. But it's, it's interesting that the same debate recurs uh, again and again. Um, Real quick question to Chip, and then I'm gonna go, go back to another question, but uh, sticking with confidence building measures, was there any other confidence building, uh, building measures that DOD was okay with um, if uh, the discussion of US troops wasn't, uh, wasn't uh, kosher? So what else could have we talked about in terms of tension reduction? We could have talked about a lot more um, South Korean presence in North Korea. Uh, the Taesan Industrial Complex was, uh, um, I thought, a pretty neat thing. I mean, yeah, there was a lot uh, to, uh, to, to worry about with that, but when you think about it, uh, we got a lot more people inside North Korea that had never been inside North Korea before, and that had to have a positive effect, uh, not just on relations, but on collection uh, and everything else. Uh, we, we could have demanded uh, the uh, more at more access for aid giving organizations to North Korea. We were just coming out of a horrific famine uh, in those days, and uh, with 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 an extraordinary number of fatalities, uh, and there was reason to believe that we could head off uh, more if if that happened. One of the things that happens with getting the aid-giving organizations in there as we're working directly with the North Korean public. And even autocratic leaders have to worry at some point about popular support. And if we could have made more contact with the Korean population, that would do. Harder things to do would be getting some agreement of North Korea to start withdrawing artillery from the Kaesong Heights. 
the uh, and again, it's a, it's the nuclear issue that drowns everything out. But Seoul is already under an existential threat just from conventional artillery before you even add in chemical weapons that are quite likely. So there were a lot of things that we could do, but as Phil may have better memory of this than I do, or Bob, but I don't remember that we went very far down the road on any other confidence-building measures that we might introduce. A, uh, one famous humanitarian guy, uh, Andrew Natsios, uh, many of you probably remember him. He was in and out of North Korea a lot, and the information he brought out of North Korea in his dealings with the North Korean population uh, it just left you slack-jawed because uh, he was describing a charnel house. And uh, it might be might be cynical, but we never exploited that with trying to talk about what North Korea is doing to their own people. And uh, I think we could have, uh, and we may have been able to gain some leverage out of that. I don't know. We didn't try it, so that's a theory, but unproven. Thank you, Chip. Uh, I want to jump to the next question. Um, I'll direct it to Phil and Chip, but of course, Bob, you can jump in uh, if you want as well. Um, so one of the confusing aspects of this period was that there were a lot of talks going on simultaneously, it seems. There was the missile talks. There were the four-party peace talks. There was the discussion about the, the facility at Kumchangni. And then, of course, we got into the Perry process later. And it's, it's hard to sometimes understand, unless you were there at the time, how these various talks bleeded together. Um, were they separate? Were one and the same? Did they work at cross purposes? Um, so starting with Phil, how did these talks relate? Um, and did they uh, undermine each other or were they complementary? Well, I have to give great credit to, um, you know, I, I, I would say Chuck Cartman in terms of keeping all this straight. Okay, um, I think we had the agreed framework, um, and then you had the you know the agreed framework, which is essentially bilateral um, in terms of the negotiations, and then you had the submarine talks that were between the U.S. and North Korea. But after that, um, everything that went forward. This is one of the great credits that I give to the the four party talks. The four party talks were the cover or the platform in which everything else was able to emanate from um, and was the basis, I think, in sort of a lot of the discussions that we had. Um, and, you know, we, we had these initial Kim Chang Ni talks. I mean, part of it was the United States was a free, the great framework was going to start falling apart. So we started initiating these conversations and the missile went over. But in the end, um, we were able to use the four party as a way for us to have these conversations. Unlike the six party talks, which was really created to, um, in my mind, to prevent or to prevent the United States, the United States didn't want to talk with North Korea. So the six party talks were put in to, to, to create that mechanism. Here, it was a mechanism for us to continue conversations and really in the end for North Korea and South Korea to continue as well. So in my mind, the, you know, there are some exceptions here, there, here and there, but the Perry process, the missile negotiations, Kim Chang-ni, the four party talks were us always going back together again to have that kind of conversation. I do remember, um, if I recall, I think it was in Beijing, we um, had, there were four party talks, but we really didn't have four party talks. It was all bilateral conversations with us, you know, filling the South Koreans in on what was going on. 
Um, so that's kind of the way I looked at it. And again, I give great credit to, to Chuck sort of being the person to make sure all of this sort of fit together. I'm glad uh, Phil brought up Chuck Cartman and his role. And um, in retrospect, I think he should have been given far more authority on, on our side, and maybe we would have stayed a little bit more coordinated. Um, part of the genesis of the six of the uh, uh, Perry process, as I recall, was that uh, we were getting a lot of worried uh, sounds out of Japan and South Korea. Uh, that uh, they had lost track of what we were doing. Phil mentioned the, the, the rocket that went over uh, Honshu. Uh, this was an interesting time. We were in negotiations with the North Koreans in, at the US-UN headquarters. They were being remarkably cooperative and looked like they wanted a deal. And uh, we all, including Chuck, got suspicious. So we broke for the weekend. It was scheduled to be two weeks of talks. So we broke for the weekend at the end of the first week, and that was the weekend when a rocket went over Honshu. Yeah. And Phil may remember this, we, we delayed going back to New York for two full days, Monday and Tuesday, trying to find authorities in the United States that would change our negotiating instructions. Silence from our superiors. So we went back up to New York with our original negotiating instructions. We, we got a deal in line with our original negotiating instructions. And everybody's cell phone blew up on the way to the airport with people yelling at us because we signed the deal. Well, we asked you to change the instructions, but you didn't. Um, so Congress got worried. They had a hearing. Uh, and um, the National Security Advisor, name will come back in a moment, uh, was testifying. And he said, we're going to start a process. We're going to get somebody to run it. Well, who's going to run it? Well, we don't know. And all this the back. And finally, he said, somebody like a Bill Perry. Bang, it was Friday afternoon. The gavel comes down. Everybody goes home. Bill Perry picks up his weekend newspaper, the San Jose Mercury News, and finds he's been named a special envoy to, North, to, to, to the Korean party process. He comes to Washington next week, and he was angry because he'd been ambushed on this. Nobody told him. Uh, and he's he, in that conference room right off of uh, uh, the uh, State Department office there. He, he, he had a bunch of us in there. Uh, uh, Phil, I think you were there. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we all told him in one way or another, our allies don't trust us anymore. And he said, you're wrong. Flew off to Japan, to Seoul, came back. We're all in the same conference room again. And he's lecturing us saying our allies don't trust us anymore. <laughs> oh, I heard that somewhere. So we, it, this was not a high point of organization on, on, on how we were doing. North Korea was still a sideshow uh, in, uh, uh, and still our mono focus was on the North Korean nuclear program, not on the overall security situation of Northeast Asia and the overall threat that North Korea uh, embodied, not just to South Korea and Japan and everybody, but to their own people. And uh, uh, Bill Perry tried hard. We went to North Korea bearing gifts. Uh, we had a big uh, trunk full of, um, of, of medical supplies. The North Koreans, and Bob knows this, this tendency of North Koreans far better than I do, but uh, the, the, the happy sounds, happy sounds, you're going to get to meet the dear leader, you're going to meet the dear leader. So for two days, they're pumping us up. And then the last day, they just stone-faced, no questions, nothing answered. 
and it had a psychological effect on uh, those of us in the party that were there with Bill Perry, uh, that, oh my God, we failed. No, you didn't fail. This, this is North Korea. This, this is part of the normal process, if you can call it a process, but it was, uh, it, it was, it was high drama. And by the way, Perry's special assistant along there at the time was Ash Carter, who then went on to have his own North Korean dream when he came back to the government in a higher position. So no good deed goes unpunished with North Korea. So we had the Perry process. And then by the time we got to 2000, we sort of swept up in summitry, right? Um, or at least there was the inter-Korean summit and then the meeting with uh, Madeleine Albright and then the, the return trip with Vice Marshal Cho. Um, did that just kind of subsume the, the the four party peace talk. So I think the last one was in 99, but at that point, I think everyone was caught up in the summitry and, and the, the very senior level meetings. Bob, you're shaking your head, but you're, you're muted. It's a good thing I'm muted. I've been muttering. <laughs> <laughs> now, look, the four party talks never had a chance. It never was going to go anywhere. It never got traction. It never accomplished anything. I can, I can tell you after the first meeting, and I, I was Chuck's ad, advisor. Uh, and I said to Chuck, I'll never say this publicly, but these will never succeed. These are never gonna go anywhere. And it was, it was just clear to me that it couldn't go anywhere. Phil is right, we used it as an opportunity to have bilateral talks with the North Koreans on other issues, but that's, that's not, that's, not, that's not much in favor of four party talks. As for coordinating everything, I would take a different view. One of the problems was the US, other than Chuck, the US government really didn't have a central point for the policy. As far as, as I'm concerned, he thought the agreed framework talks and what was built out of that should be the center of our policy. Missile talks, were not well conceived, were not well plugged in, almost accomplished nothing until the end. Um, the Kum jong ni talks were very important, but it was because it was a big drain on our intellectual and diplomatic energy. We had to get over that. So all through this, it was agreed framework. The agreed framework was so important because it was not just the, the words on paper, it was, the, it was the environment that it created for all sorts of other talks uh, between all different parties, all under this umbrella, this, this uh, atmosphere that the agreed framework had created. I think that's important. Four party didn't fit into that. Four party was badly conceived uh, as Chip and Phil pointed out, it was dropped on the bureaucracy no one knew really how to make it work. Why in the world were the Chinese there? Only because the South Koreans didn't want it to be three-way talks. So it, it was just an, it was a zebra combined with a tiger combined with an ostrich. It just couldn't, couldn't survive. And by 99, the, you know, the Swiss hosted this thing. They paid for a lot of stuff and they used to give us nice croissant during the coffee breaks. As we had more and more meetings, which weren't going anywhere, the croissant got smaller and smaller and smaller. 
So by 99, they were minuscule. And to me, that was a sure sign that this was not going to. Yeah. Yeah. Only a good analysis officer would pick up on that indicator. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, thank you for that candor. I think um, we're running out of time, um, but I appreciate that um, pessimism because I feel like, you know, for those of us uh, who want these types of talks, peace talks, um, it, it gets to that question of, okay, well, what can we learn from this period? And this is basically the last question to finish up, the takeaways and the lessons, right? Because we, you talked about the woeful lack of preparation. Um, Phil mentioned the, the ambiguous nature of the initial proposal. But I'm not even sure if we, if we, even if we prepared meticulously for the talks, even if the, the proposal was specific and clear, I'm still not sure that North Korea would have responded differently. They may still have taken a lot of time to respond. They may still have proposed uh, what they wanted to have on the agenda. So, you know, what are the takeaways? Um, we talked about all these things that were wrong about it, but what can we take from that experience if we ever get to the point in the future where it's uh, appropriate to have these sorts of discussions on normalization and, and peace. Uh, so, and anyone, whoever wants to jump in first. So let me jump in really quickly. One is that I have come to realize that is a fact of nature. It is a fact, it is a reality that things are gonna get dropped on us no matter what. Things are gonna be conceived for various reasons. And so my, my lesson learned is expect something like this, it's always gonna happen. And the best thing you do is you make some lemon out of lemon, you make lemonade out of lemons. And so I kind of disagree with Bob is that I think the four party talks allowed us to deal with South Korea, at least initially um, in a way that we would, it made it easier for us to do that um, and gave us the platform to con the, where they had some way to inter interact with the North Koreans to some degree and politically that was good for them. Um, I think that one of the lessons I learned from that period is that seemingly intractable positions, such as who signs and who doesn't, uh, you know, troops, all of that change. Um, and I think that, you know, I had an argument with someone said that, you know, countries' interests do not change over time. Um, yeah, that may be the case, but I do believe that governments' perceptions of what their interests do. And I think the art of diplomacy is creating possibilities and ways of ways for people to look at things in a different manner. And I think that is from that time to now is a really great demonstration of that. And then finally, I think oh, what this period shows to me is um, that, you know, timing this, you know, I kind of relate the Perry process as part of that whole area, uh, that whole, you know, is all one big package is that timing is everything. And so when the timing is right, you've got to go for it and you got to go for it really big. Um, and, and that is an argument for being bold when you can. That's a good point. I think we've seen how, how um, things change over time. Uh, you mentioned, um, you know, that we talked about North Korea's you know, willingness to engage with South Korea or sit at the same table as South Korea and China. And I mentioned this earlier, but, um, Kim Jong-un, one of his statements, I, can't, I think it might've been uh, in 2018, he talked about uh, being willing to, at some point, uh, open it up, open up the process from a bilateral USCPRK to a multilateral process with China and, and South Korea. So you're right, and you know, with more experience, they become more uh, 
acclimated to these different negotiating formats. Uh, Bob, Chip, any other takeaways, lessons learned from the four-party talks? Chip. Uh, I'd put a couple of things on the table. One, uh, one of the questions that came in on chat was whether we crossed a Rubicon of format uh, since the Trump-Kim summits. No, I don't think so. We can get back to regular order now so that the staff can do their jobs. But what I think one of the things out of the, not only the four-party talks, but the Perry process and everything else, is that it's okay to be talking to North Korea about denuclearization. As a matter of fact, we should do that, but we need to broaden the aperture here. What's really important, what we're really talking about at the root here is the safety and the security of our allies and friends. So we need to keep our eye on that uh, and then put it into context so that then we can find some common interest, uh, Russia, China, South Korea, Japan, United States to go forward. I fear that we hurt our credibility in the United States when we hang everything on one issue of denuclearization. Number one, Kim's not gonna voluntarily give up his nuclear weapons because without his nuclear weapons, he has nothing. And number two, a candid self-examination, what could we offer North Korea as a security guarantee that North Korea would believe? They know we change governments every four years, every eight anyway, uh, and that the guarantees of one administration oftentimes don't go into the next administration. They know that there's UN study after UN study on North Korea's brutalization of its own population. Sooner or later, the United States wakes up to human rights. Uh, we're in one of those phases right now where that puts Kim in a very bad light. So uh, all, of, all of which is to say, yes, talking is good, chat, chat, jaw, jaw is better than war, war, but we've got to make sure that we're addressing the right objectives and putting things in the right context and not pinning everything on something that I've come to believe is not going to happen. Uh, we have a little less than 15 minutes left, so I want to get to the audience questions, but uh... Bob, any, any thoughts on takeaways? Let's get to the audience. I think that would be useful, yeah. Okay, so Chip uh, referred to the first question, which gets to the format of the talks. Um, we Recently, we had the precedent set of the leader-to-leader -leader level summit. Um, so the question is, have we now crossed the Rubicon in terms of format since the, the Trump-Kim summits? Can we go back to a multilateral format? that's initiated by working level talks? And should we go back to the format? So, you know, two different questions here. One is, you know, bilateral, four party, six party, multilateral. Uh, and then also going from working level to uh, more senior levels. Um, any thoughts on, on those format questions? And I will address it to Bob first. I don't think multilateral works with North Korea. Uh, certainly not going in, not until quite a bit has been established. We saw with Quito that you can have multilateral talks with the North Koreans, very useful ones, but it's a very particular type of uh, format uh, talking about a very specific type of issue. Broader talks uh, in a multilateral setting seems to me is just um, asking for trouble. So I, my view is those don't work very well. That has nothing to do with the summit. Um, yes, it's a good thing Trump uh, opened that door. It means we can get back to it more easily when it's the proper time. It isn't the proper time now, obviously. 
and we got a lot of work to do before it will be. Don't forget, Kim, uh, Kim Jong-un is not going to risk his um, reputation again going into a summit with an American president and coming out with nothing. So I think he's going to want to see a likelihood of progress as much as we are. So I'll jump in. Uh, I think it's a version of all of the above. Um, I think that multilateral at the beginning is not helpful. It is incredibly unwieldy. Four-party talks, just, you know, three of us can remember this. I mean, oh my God, right? Translations, everyone saying something, it just was, it was interminable forever. And that's why Chip was saying, get a book, right? There's something to be said for that. Um, but that's not to say that at a later stage, multilateral will not be critical, because I, I do think that um, if we're serious about creating a security environment, if we believe that North Korea ultimately wants security, um, it's just not going to rely on the United States word or South Korea's word. There's got to be other people involved, and that um, will have to happen at some stage. I do also credit Trump with this notion of um, symmetry but it has to be combined smartly with working level. And I think that's been the problem all along where um, at least the previous, um, the, uh, with, with Trump and Bush and Obama, it was one or the other. Um, and what I, tr what, what I mean by that is Trump was all symmetry and nothing working level. And I think the Bush years in particular was all working level and no, taste of symmetry or high level, which also made it very difficult. So it's got to be a combination of both. Chip, any thoughts? Uh, Trump was not the first uh, and not the only American politician to think that somehow a personal relationship can be established across cultures, across countries with bone deep differences. Uh, we had some of that during the uh, Clinton administration, and uh, um, that, that brings me back to what I said at probably too much length before about we need to keep our eye on the prize here. It's the safety and security of our allies and friends. The nuclear weapons to North Korea are a part of it, but they're only a part of it. And we can multilateralize the process, but that's got to be, but it's got to be part of a bigger process. We got other things to talk about with Russia than North Korea. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about North Korea with them. Same thing with China. And uh, put this thing into, into context. Um, our other remedies, uh, like sanctions, have proven to be a failure. Once uh, One after another, we impose a set of sanctions when we get tired of negotiations, agreements, and cheating on agreements. And North Korea always finds a way to work around the, the sanctions fairly easily. Uh, the, again, this. We have, there's a bigger issue here that we need to tackle instead of continuing to embarrass ourselves by focusing on Mission Impossible by itself. Thanks, Chip. Um, it seems to me that you know the, the path of least resistance uh, for North Korea has been the bilateral level talks. And so I like the idea of combining the formats where you start with bilateral to get North Korea on board. And then as things develop, you bring in different players as necessary according to their interests. So from the bilateral to a four party, eventually six party and internationalizing it uh, as, the, as the needs arise. Um, so the next question um, I wanna raise relates to an end of war declaration. So uh, last week there was um, 
the, the House Armed Services Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee had a hearing and Representative Andy Kim uh, raised the question about uh, the possibility of declaring an end to the Korean War. He asked it of General Abrams, who basically said it's, it's you know, end of war declaration is not a problem from a military standpoint, but it has to be part of a bigger plan. Secretary Blinken had more of a political response, basically saying, well, well, we need to review the issue further, right? But what are your thoughts on an end of war declaration um, as a part of the process to uh, kick off uh, negoti further negotiations with North Korea? And uh, anyone can jump in, but uh, I will direct it to Bob first um, if no one else jumps in. Okay, the, uh, it seems to me that um, people should go back to the October 2000 joint communique, which is a sort of a pathway to that. We said uh, both countries will avoid, um, it's either hostile policies or- Right to exist. Intent, yeah, toward the other. The next step from that can be the era of the Korean War is over. Now that sounds soft and, and sort of goofy, but it's not because it allows both sides to take a number of steps um, under an umbrella of a, of a transformed situation and still have in front of them the problem of moving from the armistice to the uh, peace regime, but it gives it impetus. It allows both sides to agree that they're going to be serious about this they're gonna go slowly. And a lot of the other things that have been attached to the Korean War, such as a lot of the US sanctions, which date back to then, um, can be dealt with without any sense of um, contradicting their, uh, their central policies. So I, I think we can go at this step by step. I think it's a good idea. So um, my view is, you know, again, just the devil's in the details on all this. Is it just simply just saying it? Um, you know, I, you know, there's a part of me that wants to, again, hypothesis test with the North Koreans. One of their big talking points has always been the reason why they have nuclear weapons, the reason why they have so many troops is because they're in a state of war with the United States, we're the enemy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it seems to me that, um, you know, if that's the impediment, is there a way in which we can uh, get rid of that impediment to see if they're really genuine about what they want to do or not? I mean, intellectually, there's, there's, you know, one can say, well, you know, you can see, you know, if you look at their perspective, they're saying, why should we give this up when we're still enemies, right? So let's, let's test that. So in principle, I don't think it's a bad idea, but, you know, with a simple declaration, you know, I can see where they're going to say, well, you know, we still have the armistice, you know, you get into all these other issues here, right? We still have the armistice, it's a ceasefire, we're still in a state of war. So you've got to formally end this state of war, um, I think. And, um, you know, the mechanism for that has to be thought through, but that's what I would be looking at. Thank you. And then uh, let's go to our last question, which is on, um, U.S. troop withdrawals. We talked about this earlier, and Chip had a lot of great points about it. So 2021, we're in a different situation. Um, South Korea's uh, defense and deterrence capabilities have uh, 
um, been enhanced incredibly, certainly over the last decade. Um, they have a very capable and competent military, and they've been acquiring uh, additional um, capabilities, including things like F-35s, Apache helicopters. They're developing their own indigenous Korean fighter. Um, they're talking about acquiring Iron Dome, um, not to mention their uh, extended uh, ballistic missile, uh, the, the range of their ballistic missiles, as well as enhanced payloads. So they're taking a lot of steps, and as well as their ballistic missile defense, right? Not only the, the US deployment of FAD, but their own uh, GEM-T systems. Um, now that South Korea's military has uh, grown stronger, and the US military should be looking at our fourth posture, not in terms of just numbers, but also capabilities and what the mission is, not only on the Korean Peninsula, but in the region, uh, can we uh, readdress the issue of the U.S. fourth posture on the Korean Peninsula? Uh, certainly, we're not going to raise it if uh, North Korea doesn't. Um, it's, it's not that much of a concern for us. But how do we think about the fourth posture issue today differently from 20 years ago? And I'll go to uh, Chip first for this one. There has been over time a gradual uh, decrease in the mathematical number of uh, troops on the peninsula. Uh, the uh, latest uh, figure that I knew was 28,500, and it became almost a religious totem that uh, we had to be there every day. It even raised political issues. Uh, if we had to or wanted to take a squadron to maintain their air combat proficiency. Uh, so, so there is so there is that force. There is an, there is one U.S. element on the DMZ, and that's the Second Infantry Division, the famous Indian Head Division. It's got 10,000 U.S. troops. It's got 1,100 Korean troops as, as part of that. But the vast majority of the Third Rock Army and the First Rock Army that is guarding the northern approaches to South Korea uh, are all obviously Korean. Uh, so it's not uh, it's not like there are force U.S. forces poised on the DMZ to invade North Korea, which invading somebody through the most fortified border in the history of the planet is not really a good idea. The vast majority of the 28,500 that we have there on the peninsula are other than combat troops, engineers, uh, communications, logistics, maintenance, uh, Air Force at, at Osan Air Base, uh, and, and, and this. So can we make adjustments to it? Yes, we make adjustments to it over time. The next big adjustment is going to be the transfer of OPCON control that we talked about earlier, but that's uh, the, the, both sides agree both the Koreans and the U.S. agree that conditions have to be met, and, and then we'll do that. Um, the uh, North Korean myth that the United States is poised uh, in the starters blocks to invade North Korea is absolutely not true. Uh, we're there to defend the Republic of Korea, and uh, we we, we don't emphasize that enough. As far as the declaration of end of war and things uh, that we talked about, you can develop over time a long list of conditions that should be met under that end of war principle, one of which is to get rid of the cocked pistol posture of the North Koreans uh, on, the, on the border with, with South Korea. Uh, I think South Korea would agree with that too. 
not to mention uh, the periodic provocations that occur, and uh, they've been they've been deadly in the past. And uh, what does an end of war declaration uh, mean in terms of like the sinking of the Chunan or the attack in the Joint Security Area that uh, that killed two U.S. troops, or the ones that, that were mentioned earlier about the EC-121 that was shot down, the seizure of the Pueblo, and things like that. What, how do we treat that under if we've signed an end of war declaration? And what does it say about an end of war declaration? So, all good questions. Yeah. Um, Phil, go ahead. Yeah, Frank, you know, again, US troops, the disposition, all of that. I mean, you know, you, you can't consider that's. That's one narrow slice of the geography, right? I mean, there's a larger issue here between the United States and China. Um, and I think Korean, the Korean Peninsula and Northeast Asia has to figure highly prominently into that. And part of that has to, you know, um, that kind of conversation, you know, engenders a lot, you know, much larger issues here that have to be considered and considered carefully. And I think that ultimately within that context, one has to figure out what the rationale would be for, a, um, for US troops. Um, and I think there is one, but um, you know, that's something that has to be articulated, has to be articulated very clearly, um, not only for the Chinese and the South Koreans and others in East Asia, but for the American public themselves. And that's something that's, um, you know, I think has to be uh, well thought through. Thanks, Phil. I want to give Bob the last word uh, before we end this session. So, Bob. It's useful to go back, as you said, uh, 25 years and see if we can pull any, um, any meaning out of what went on. I think most of the lessons are negative ones, but that's fine. Nothing wrong with negative lessons if it helps you avoid getting into the same swamp. The situation is so different now. Kim Jong-un is a completely different cat than his father was. We have very little experience, unfortunately, uh, in dealing with him or understanding him. And so that's going to have to be job one, the reconnaissance uh, to figure out what he wants, what he thinks, how he works. We made a stab at that in, in uh, 2018, 2019, but we fell backwards and we have to recover, I think, a lot of that ground before we can really launch into uh, substantive engagement. Thanks, Bob. And so um, I'll end it here. I want to thank uh, all of our speakers for contributing their thoughts and, and I apologize for making them reach back 25, I can barely remember what I ate for breakfast yesterday. And so going back 25 years and dusting off the folders, I, I really appreciate it. I also wanna thank um, our AV team and, and my colleague, Lucy Stevenson-Yang for helping put uh, the event together. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, thank you again to the speakers as well. Take care. Thank you, Frank. Thanks, Frank. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.